I remember, as if it were yesterday, the inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, we went to Willard's Hotel. We old Washingtonians say Willard's. I don't know why it's... We do, but we do. I guess there were two brothers. And we rented... Uh, people were renting suites at Willard's to watch the inaugural parade. And I remember a very odd thing, which was they had a kind of sound system from the Capitol, connected through, throughout the town, really, but down Pennsylvania Avenue. And we have nothing to fear, but fear itself was all out of sync. So one would be just behind the other. So we have nothing, and who fear, but fear itself. And it was the strangest, most surreal thing that I've ever heard in my life, was this voice all around us and all out of sync. And we rather thought the administration might very well be like that. Uh, it began in chaos. Roosevelt was then faced with, uh, as you know, a great banking crisis. He shut down the banks, gave us a bank holiday. The nothing to fear but fear itself was a stroke of psychological genius because everybody was scared. Where Mr. Roosevelt was perhaps slightly mendacious was that we had a lot of fear, like a totally collapsed economic system. And what was it, 35% unemployment? Uh, it was a dire time. My grandfather began to fall out with him. Senator Gore had, had written the only socialist constitution of any of the states. Believe it or not, the, the Constitution of the state of Oklahoma is a socialist document, nationalized the railroads, which Senator Gore wrote. With the passage of time, he got more and more conservative, more and more reactionary, and like so many of the old populists, he was into every funny money scheme you could ever think. I mean, money to him was that they, they were constantly thinking of new means of making money, whether it was William Jennings Bryan and silver, monetizing silver, this or that. So my grandfather ended up as the chairman, I think, of the banking committee, banking currency. Well...
and cold as my pen He was your best friend And you will never, ever, ever see him again Now Mary's out the door with the loaded 44 in her hand Shooting down the law that shot down a dead body man
Secretly, as was his wont, President Roosevelt had come to the conclusion that we should go off the gold standard. 
Now, the Western senators, particularly the old populists, uh, they were always worried about money being worthless, particularly those, my grandfather, those senator from Oklahoma was from Mississippi, and he was brought up in Reconstruction when it was not unlike Weimar, Germany. The currency was worth nothing. Nobody had any money. Everybody was in hock to the eastern banks. The soundness of currency to poor people, and particularly to farmers, was all important. In one way, he was very to the left, farther to the left than Roosevelt. But he was interested in the party of the people, and he didn't much care for Roosevelt's class, which were the eastern bankers and New York City. So Senator Gore and Carter Glass, the senator from Virginia, who was a, also an expert on banking currency, and four or five other members of the banking committee, leadership of the Senate, were called in by Roosevelt, who had decided to take the country off the gold standard. Now, my grandfather, being blind, was not able to follow the nuance of presidential expressions during this meeting. So Roosevelt made a little pitch to the senators what he was going to do. And he went around the room, and he was at the head of one uh, of the table at one end. My grandfather's chairman was head at the other. So they went around, oh, Mr. President, that's just a wonderful idea. My heavens, you just took the words out of my mouth, Mr. President, you know. The Senate was already getting craven then. And then he finally said, well, Tom, now my, no one ever called Senator Gore by his first name. My grandmother called him Mr. Gore. I don't know what they said to each other in bed, but he was always Mr. Gore. And he was a frosty, a very impressive old man, and said, well, Tom, what do you think? And I could, grandfather ground his false dentures and said, well, he said, Senator, he said, Mr. President, it's difficult for me uh, to know what to feel as what you are proposing is highway robbery. People have taken our currency in good faith, thinking it was issued in good faith and based upon gold, and now you say it's to be based on nothing at all. So you have, in effect, taken the gold value for yourself from the currency, and the currency theoretically is worthless. Carter Glass told my grandfather later that the president went ashen during this, <laughs> said absolutely nothing to my grandfather, sh shut down the meeting, and from that moment it was war between Senator Gore and President Roosevelt. My grandfather was up for re-election in 36. Roosevelt set out to purge him in favor of somebody called Josh Lee, and my grandfather was defeated in the primary after 30 years, to which he said, all is lost, including honor.
your fling Why keep nursing the blues If you want this old world on a string Put on your dancing shoes Stop wasting time Put on your dancing shoes Watch your spirits climb Shall we dance Or keep on moping Shall we dance And walk on air Shall we give in To despair Or shall we dance with never a care Life is short We're growing older Don't you be And also ran You'd better dance little lady Dance little man Dance whenever you can
His great gift was something that nobody knew, and I don't think Roosevelt knew it either. Radio had just come into its own, and he turned out to be a superb radio performer. All the other politicians thought he was cheating, you know, since he was good at radio, he ought not to use it, you know, as they, or he ought to be as bad as they were. They would talk boom into the, uh, into the radio, the way they would do out on the hustings, out on a platform. Roosevelt would caress with his voice the microphone, and he treated the people as though they had intelligence. And I remember once, I was a great friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. In the last ten years of her life, I, I lived near her, upstate New York. I saw quite a lot of her. And she said something to me about, I was a Democratic leader upstate New York, and she said, you know, don't do too many subjects in one speech. Just remember, there are only one or two things you can explain. But if you take the time to explain it, so the people are not stupid, they will follow you. But you have to start at the beginning, and you've got to explain it. And that, because of that, if you notice the cadence of his voice, when he began, he, he, he brought his voice down half an octave, I think it was, through a voice coach. He also, instead of rattling like politicians, I remember Eleanor Roosevelt telling me, would you please tell Mr. Kennedy not to talk so rapidly, as the people can't follow what he's saying. Roosevelt was superb at explaining just what was going on. And the whole country tuned into him. I mean, the idea of a sound bite in those days, I mean, you, we were a serious country. The people had something to do with the government, and they felt in Roosevelt they had somebody who understood them, somebody who spoke to them. Other politicians found him... Uh, uh, mendacious and tricky, which indeed he was, but he was also had a direct pipeline to the people. Then came the newsreels, and he was pretty good at them too. And he used to call them his garbos. So let's watch one of my garbos, he'd say at the White House, and then they'd show the latest Pathé newsreel, and he would study himself the way a movie star would, you know. That's not a very good angle, is it? Mm. So here was a president who had established a rapport of a sort that has never been done since between the White House. Television cannot allow it because seven minutes is considered eternal on television. Also, they're advised to say nothing of any substance because it might be used against them. I have not heard any politician say anything intelligent in the United States in 30 years at the presidential level. Not, nothing, at least not at election time. So Roosevelt first of all, drove his opposition mad because he had gone over the heads. Ninety percent of the newspaper editorials were against him. And ninety percent of the people were for him. And the newspapers were going mad. They would normally be able to just eliminate him by attacking him. No way. He was smoke over their heads. He was on a roll. Then, of course, war clouds loomed and... Uh, I'm a hollow spot
you see, the original De Democratic Party was, in effect, the, the Bryan Party, the party of the people, in uneasy alliance with Tammany and the big city machines out of which Roosevelt had come. If you remember the happy warrior that Roosevelt had termed Al Smith, the first Catholic to become a presidential candidate. So Roosevelt was this uneasy alliance of trying to get along with these southern senators whom he hated, like my grandfather, and Tammany Hall, whom he disdained. So when we talk about the president's mendacity, Mr. Roosevelt's inability to tell the truth, well, he couldn't tell the truth. If he told the truth over here, he'd defend them over there. So he, was, he, had, a, he, was, he had an extraordinary habit of filibuster. If you came to see him and he didn't want to talk to you, he'd start in right away. I had the most interesting experience this morning, I must tell you. <laughs> By the time your five minutes was up, he hadn't stopped talking. Wonderful to see you. Stay in touch. <laughs> You'd go out and with nothing, nothing at all granted and you hadn't said a word to him that you wanted to say. He was a master politician. I would say that from, uh, he did save the country from 30, three to 36. By then he was a pre-war president, then he was a war president. He said, Dr. No Deal has given way to Dr. Win the War. And he rather loved being a wartime dictator. My grandfather's take on him was always that the presidents, every president wants to be a dictator. It is the nature of power. You don't accept limited powers unless you're a very limited man or woman. Once you're there in a great crisis, great presidents are defined by great crises. The greatest crisis, of course, that can befall a country is war. That is why so many presidents maneuver the country into wars or gaze benignly upon westward uh, the course of empire like Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt distant cousin of Franklin Roosevelt, said that war is the greatest achievement of man. It's only through war that we define ourselves, I'm paraphrasing, but it's only through war that you know the quality of a civilization. I once asked his daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, a great friend of mine, very witty woman, I said, what on earth was all that jingo stuff about? Oh, she said, they all talked like that then. So it's not serious. So I said, tell that to the Filipinos they slaughtered, you know, when westward our course of empire.
museum it was Whatever roof upon Whatever aches and pains I will try To be happy I will try To be happy Whatever my sisters think Whatever nightmare screams Whatever drips and drabs of loose despair I will try to be happy I will try Whatever poison I am taking, whatever freedoms run dry, whatever hideout my heart is held, I will try to be happy. I will try to be happy. Yopper's heart, the awful starts, your death defying. I will take them in my stride And I'll try to be happy I will try to be happy I will try to be happy I will try
I think he intended to get us into the Second War as soon as possible for his usual devious mix, and this goes back, I would say, as early as 35, 36, when Hitler was rising, and the Brits already were sending out, you know, little SOS uh, distress codes to Washington, help us, help us. He had a double game, and I've never seen anyone, no historian has ever really, that I know of, I haven't read all the histories of that time, but I know from having been there, he was very anti-British. Now, this is very curious. He's an upstate Dutchess County gentleman, seeming to be very much in the British model, but he's really Dutch, and with a great resentment of the British Empire. So part of his pushing the country into the second war on the side of England, the Allies, which was immediately aborted by the Japanese inspiration to blow us up in Pearl Harbor. But his whole pressure was, yes, he thought Hitler was bad news and Hitler should be defeated. He wanted to put an end to colonialism. He wanted to break up the British Empire and the Dutch Empire and the French colonial empire. And who would pick up the pieces? We would. Now, this was the Imperial Roosevelt that is not much dealt with. And you had to be there sort of at the time, knowing what the discussions that were going on, and the real hostility to England, and at the same time, a sort of love-hate relationship, and, of course, a desire to keep, uh, you know, not to let them fall, not to let Hitler win. But much more important, I mean, Roosevelt spent more time muttering away to Churchill about what to do about India than they did talking about... Uh, opening up the Normandy landings. So in a sense, he was, Franklin Roosevelt, from the beginning, really, was going to continue the imperial uh, mission of his cousin Theodore, who was in turn the uncle of his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, and uh, the world was going to be American. And so he gave it to us. And from 1945 to 1950, that was the length of our world empire. It only lasted five years from his death to the Korean War. Uh, the world was ours, and he and cousin Theodore would have been very, very happy at this hegemony of the earth. Then things fell apart. <laughs>
myself.